It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing at Centrepoint, not the famous 34-storey tower block on the corner of New Oxford Street and Charing Cross Road, but the lesser-known headquarters at 54 Dean Street in Soho. Opened in 1969 and still running today, Centrepoint is a local charity providing support for the city's homeless. Perched at the back of St Anne's Church, the garden provides a fascinating window into the world we live in today. As among society's most desperate, the addicts, the alcoholics, the lost, the lonely, the maligned and the mentally unwell, you'll also see many dreadlocked Trustafarians trying to blend in. Having Ubered in from the mean streets of Hoxton to see the real London, these well-meaning nincompoops often sit sad-faced, sympathising with the ragged wretch's tale of hunger. Having just wolfed down an avocado and crayfish for catcher, while still wearing a stylishly ripped and soiled pair of jeans, the cost of which would clothe a homeless person for a year, and being entirely ignorant of the fact, having been guilt-tripped into setting up a direct debit via a sales call or a chucker, that only a small percentage, if any, of the money they donate is given to the charity. As being a non-profit organisation, most of the profits go to a third-party funding company to pay for swanky new offices, a Christmas party, and the director's bonus. So if you really want to help a charity, choose wisely and contact them direct. On Tuesday the 11th of July 1972, eight days after the murder of Sarah Gibson, in the basement bar of Centrepoint, police arrested David Frooms. David wasn't what they were expecting. He was small, thin and softly spoken. They had the right man, but what they didn't know was why. Why would a homeless man, in search of food and money, subject a total stranger he had only met that night to four terrifying hours of rape, strangulation and death. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide and this 
is Murder Mile. Episode 161, Do Not Disturb, Part 3. On Monday the 3rd of July 1972, PCs Eden Gurney secured room 519 at the RAC club and awaited the arrival of Detective Chief Inspector James Neville. Everything about the crime scene was wrong. The room itself didn't match what the detectives expected to see from a rape, a robbery or a murder. From the hallway, there were no signs of a break-in. The lock was intact, the key was inside, and the door jamb hadn't been forced or damaged. Drawers had been opened and searched, but they hadn't been ransacked. Which is odd, as typically a burglar will scatter the low-cost items they don't want in search of the high-value items they do. But he left her collection of porcelain dolls, her post office savings book, and her 14-inch portable black-and-white television set worth £80. There was no denying that sexual intercourse had taken place, but was it rape or consensual? The evidence pointing towards rape was that her nightclothes had been ripped from her legs to her neck, leaving her flesh exposed. Her bedsheets were soaked with sweat. But more importantly, Sarah's wrists and ankles had been tied up. But if this was a rape, it was a strange one. As why did no one hear her screams? Why did he place a soft pillow under her bottom? Why did he tie her up so gently that the pathologist initially missed the marks? Why did he untie her gag, cut her restraints, and then retie them with a softer, looser material? And even weirder, he had ejaculated inside her. And yet her arms, legs, face and vagina didn't sustain any bruises or cuts, like a violent assault would. Everything he had used to tie up and strangle Sarah was hers. The blue bathrobe's cord, the toweling, the white stockings, and the handkerchief. Nothing was his. Beside her bed and on her bedside table, nothing had been knocked, spilt, or broken. The half-full coffee cup remained upright. Her open flask of water hadn't spilled a drop. The grey ash of six spent cigarettes hadn't wafted from the glass ashtray and a photo of her beloved family had stayed upright, perched just a few inches from her head. Detectives felt there were many details which didn't make sense. Why did he leave behind his brown jumper and his white shirt? Why didn't he wear any gloves to disguise his fingerprints? Why did he murder her? only to cover her up with a blanket, as if to make her more comfortable. And yet, as he fled, he placed a do not disturb sign on the handle, 
but left the door unlocked and left ajar. Did he panic? Or did he want her to be found? On Tuesday the 4th of July, just one day after Sarah's body was found, the police received an anonymous phone call stating, The man you're after is at centre point. It was one of hundreds of tips they would receive from members of the public. The police checked it out, but with no name, they drew a blank. Besides, even if they knew his name, Hunting David Frooms was like looking for a needle in a haystack. Having run away from home age seven, the 24-year-old ex-con knew how to run and hide. He survived by theft. His needs were basic. And he was literally one of hundreds of homeless people living in makeshift tents in a London park. Being predominantly a car thief, He was far from unlikely suspect, and his probation officer still believed that he was living at Simonwell Farm. That same day, David walked into the NatWest Bank off Pall Mall and exchanged Sarah's Churchill crown, and he made just 75 pence. On Friday the 7th, in De Vere's Coins at 97 Charing Cross Road, He sold Sarah's charm bracelet for scrap value and made £2, with an additional 50p for the mother of Pearl Lighter. And on Sunday the 9th of July, he hid a bag of his worldly possessions in a locker at the left luggage office at Piccadilly Circus Underground Station. And just like that, David Frooms had vanished. For DCI Neville, the crime scene had presented him with several pieces of hard evidence. The killer's clothes, a brown jumper and a white shirt, having been removed prior to the rape and left behind. This gave them his size and his shape, but in an era before DNA profiling, very little else. Having failed to wear gloves, The suspect's fingerprints were found on her telephone, the drawer of her wardrobe, and the top edge of her washing basin, with a faint print on the Do Not Disturb sign on the door. But without a name, still using a manual card system, where fingerprints were examined by eye, searching every possible criminal record, would take teams of highly trained officers months to make a match. Two promising notes was that they had found several brown hairs on the bedsheets, in her pubic hair, and on her body. None of which was Sarah's. They had also collected a semen sample, which confirmed her attacker's blood type, Group O, and although his specific group only accounts for 12.5% of the UK population, being a non-secretor, his sample was more likely to be confused with groups A, B, or AB. 
The police had enough evidence to convict. But what they didn't have was a suspect. The Royal Automobile Club had presented the police with hundreds of viable suspects, but with no obvious motive. Everyone agreed that Sever was a lovely girl who was innocent and fun, but upset no one. A standard practice, her family were interviewed. They all had alibis. And being so tragic, her death sent shockwaves through the family for decades to come. And although wealthy, neither the family nor Sarah had been sent any death threats, and she had no known issues in her past. Of the RAC club's 200-plus employees, everyone was interviewed, but everybody had an alibi and no motive. Of the 80 guest rooms, 17 were occupied and everyone was cleared. In fact, so thorough was the investigation that the police checked the fingerprints of every member or guest who stayed or visited the club since Sarah joined 18 months prior. But no one matched the fingerprints found in her room. And by the Friday, police had even tracked down Frank, the man from Belfast who some said was her boyfriend. He was interviewed and he voluntarily gave a sample of his hair, blood, saliva and semen. Frank was eliminated from the inquiry, leaving the police with no one. And with that, the investigation hit a dead end. David Frooms had vanished. The police didn't know him, and they had no reason to suspect him. But sometimes, people can do the strangest of things for no reason. On Saturday the 9th of July 1972, at Cannon Street Police Station, DCI James Neville received an anonymous letter sent one day earlier from a WC1 postcode. It was written on brightly coloured notepaper, which depicted three little cottages nestling in a sunset with the words peace spelt out like flowers. It read, Dear Superintendent, Thought you might like some help with your case as it seems you're approaching it from the wrong angle. I didn't like the idea of Sarah's departure, but things couldn't be helped. Though what is to stop it happening again? I found a strange sense of power in depriving a body of life. Although Sarah was a mistake. So why do I tell you this? Mainly because I'm a lonely person. Always have been. And secondly, because I think I may be ill. The reason I think this is that on the night Sarah died, which I still can't remember, I felt no remorse, no guilt. So hurry up and catch me. To prove this isn't a cranks letter, you found some blue dressing gown cord under the bed, at least a couple of pieces. 
the fingerprints on the letter match those in David's criminal record. The notepaper matched those later found in his bag at the left luggage kiosk. And having contacted his family, the letters he had recently written from the Simonwell Trust proved that the handwriting was a perfect match. All they needed to do was to find David Froome's. But again, sometimes people can do the strangest of things for no apparent reason. On Tuesday the 11th of July, another anonymous phone call stated, The man you're after is at centre point. Unlike the needle in the haystack, which had confronted them before, now the police had a name, a face, a set of fingerprints. And having realised their mistake, they went to the right centre point at 54 Dean Street. Entering the basement bar at 11.30pm, DCI Neville saw David chatting to a girl. He asked, Are you David Frooms? David replied, I am. And having identified themselves as police, David replied, I'm glad you've caught me. And with that, eight days after her murder, the killer of Sarah Gibson was arrested. In his interview, he would give the police a full and frank confession. But how much of that night could he remember? And how much of what he said was true? I am DCI Neville. On the evening of Sunday the 2nd of July 1972, where were you? I was trying to get some sleep in St James's Park. The law came in and kicked everyone out. It was a standard part of police procedure under the Vagrancy Act of 1866. I went before they got over to me. As he was afraid of being re-arrested, having stolen £50 from the Simonwell Trust. But he was unaware that this hadn't been reported as a crime. He ran up the steps of the Duke of York Memorial, turned left into Carlton House Terrace, and ran along Carlton Gardens. I wanted somewhere to kip. That weekend, there had been a mini heatwave in the high 20s. But living in a city made of stone, glass and steel, sleeping in the nightly shadows can be cold. I went round the back of a large building with a wall sign. Wool House at 5-7 Carlton Gardens was an office block occupied by the Wool Inspectorate. I tried to sleep under a sort of balcony that was there, but it was too drafty. Had the night been warmer, David may have slept there, but he didn't. I left my rucksack and I took a look around the garden, looking for a shed or something. The garden was neat and manicured, 
so he expected to find a cozy shed to shelter in. Only there wasn't one. While searching, I came upon the back of a large building with a few lights on. He didn't know it, but this was the back of the RAC club. The thought entered my head that I might find something to eat there. So I tried the windows and doors, but all were locked. As expected in a place with solid security. But people do make honest mistakes. And being such a humid day. I then saw an open window on the first floor. Someone no one knows who, had wedged it ajar. Just a crack with a folded piece of paper. It would be just small enough for a little breeze to blow in, but more than ample for David to open and enter. The problem was that this window wasn't exactly accessible, being 12 feet off the ground and hidden behind a jutting terrace. Then again, someone, having possibly ended their shift a little too quickly, had left a ten-foot ladder propped against the wall. It wasn't deliberate, but this simple mistake had made his entry easy. I entered to find some sort of dining room. I searched around for some food, but didn't find any. Just a bag of bread rolls. Near the door, there was a sort of desk with a padlock on it. It was a waiter's desk, and the padlock suggested it held something valuable within. Maybe a cash tin. I couldn't twist it off. I got a knife thing off one of the tables. A fish knife. I tried to break it, but I couldn't. And so unable to find any food or money, I went further into the building. Inside was a maze of corridors, passageways and stairwells. Having no reason nor right to enter the club before, the choices he made that night were entirely random. With 80 guest rooms and 20 staff quarters over five floors, including kitchens, offices and bars. He could have gone anywhere and found anything. But sticking out like a sore thumb, he headed up to the top floor where he was less likely to be seen. From this point on, David's detailed description of the events that night would become a little vague. Climbing the staff-only staircase, as he entered the roof, he saw a small room with a light on. I chose homes with a light on, because I knew the doors would always be open. Which being claustrophobic, Sarah's was. I went along the hall, till I came to a door where the light was coming from. And from within her room, he could hear the white noise of her television. I 
I opened the door and went in. Very quietly. And then I saw this girl lying on the bed, asleep. Snoring gently, her head on a pillow, and snuggled under the comfort of her multicolored blanket, lay Sarah. All tiny, calm and quiet. He had done this many times before. The secret was to be silent, to creep in and creep out. On the chair, by the door, a a handbag. I looked inside. There was a purse. Only small change. It's tragic to think that if she'd had more than 60p in her purse, that may have satisfied his need. Having left his bag in Wool House, he stole a rucksack and placed inside several items he had found on the dresser. A locket, a lighter, a watch and a set of earrings. They were worth very little, but either he didn't know that or he didn't care. So maybe that's why he went looking for something else. And as he crept, he didn't disturb a single item which she had left beside her bed. But soon, his plan would change. She woke up. I told her to be quiet and I gagged her. What with? A handkerchief, something else. I ripped some towel and I tied it over that. DCI Neville then asked, Did you take the gag out of her mouth? David said, Yeah, afterwards I did. After what? The DCI asked. Only with his fumbling words littered with vagaries, David replied, I don't know. And maybe he didn't. Maybe he had forgotten. Or maybe he had chosen not to remember. I told her to lie on her face. I then moved her onto her side because I was afraid she might suffocate. She was mumbling something. The words, stockings. I thought they might be too tight. So I cut them loose and tied them with some blue cord from the dressing table. David took a real risk, loosening, cutting and retying her restraints in her gag. But the likelihood is that he trusted her, as up to that point she hadn't made a sound. But why? Perhaps she was afraid. Maybe being so timid that was just who she was. Or maybe she hoped that by being good and quiet, the burglar would leave. The DCI pressed on. What were you wearing, David? Black t-shirt, brown jumper, a shirt. Did you leave the shirt in the room? Yeah, I I must have done. Did you undress in the room? I don't know. I must have done. Why did you? I don't know. 
I don't know. When asked, Did you cut any of her clothing? David replied, Yeah, with a knife. His pen knife. When asked again, David, did you make love to her? David replied, I, I can't remember. Was she naked? She was wearing something red, a nightdress. I, I don't know. The next thing I remember is being astride her on the bed. My hands were around her neck. But as much as he talked, one crucial detail was still missing from the confession. David, did you have sex with Sarah? As her lack of bruises led the detectives down a disturbing line of inquiry, at which David simply rambled on. She was dead then. Dead. 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 And having exhausted almost every avenue, DCI Neville would ask one final time. David, did you have sex with Sarah before she was dead? David Frooms was charged on the 12th of July 1972 at Bow Street Police Court. When offered legal representation, his solicitor advised him not to answer any questions, as was his legal right. And although he had previously been helpful, he would make no further statements. His trial was held at the Old Bailey from the 18th to the 20th of December 1972, before Mr Justice Forbes. He pleaded guilty to the second count of burglary, trespassing and handling stolen goods. But he pleaded not guilty to the rape and murder of Sarah Gibson. Declared sane and fit to stand trial, his solicitor used the defence of diminished responsibility owing to the trauma David has suffered during his traumatic childhood, which may have affected his memory of the events. He admitted to tying her up. He had vague recollections of strangling her. But he denied raping her, whether she was alive or dead. On Wednesday the 20th of December 1972, after just 30 minutes of deliberation, a unanimous jury of 12 men found David Frooms guilty of murder. With Mr Justice Forbes concluding, You have been found guilty in the most terrible circumstances. Nothing but a monster could have done this. As of today, David's whereabouts are unknown, and he has left Sarah's family with nothing. No daughter, no sister, but also no answers to what happened that night, as well as why did he murder her. Fifty years since her murder, we still don't know the truth. And we never will. Hold up. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, everyone. How was that? Oh dear, that's going to be a bugger to edit. I can feel it in my bones. I really do. Core lummy. Uh, oh. It's not morning. Normally I record this in the morning. Busy week this this week. So I've, I've been powering through. Wrote this. Wrote this. Uh, really came out of me. It's good. The, everything I needed to say was in there. So that's really good. And I've got a busy week this week so i'm recording this on tuesday afternoon <laughs> so but that was the last uh of this uh three-parter um and uh, i quite enjoyed it i thought it was uh, uh, quite an interesting episode um what i really wanted to do with this was because there's a lot of evidence in the case file but there's not a lot of uh answers to the question so i'm, I'm getting rid of the pillows behind my head uh, which acts as a bit of a, uh, a soundproofing because I'm next to a, a, a truck stop and there's lots of seagulls out today and it's really annoying. There's lots of sounds uh, and someone keeps running a generator and it's all very noisy. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, um, uh, this is one of those uh, uh, three-parters where there's a lot of information in there, but because he gave some of a statement and we don't know how much of that statement is true and then there's bits that he he just went quiet on because obviously his lawyer said don't say any more you've already said enough <sighs> therefore there's very little coot is outside i've got four coots outside my window and every time i open my side door they all come to the door and they go oh here oh here's the sucker who's gonna give us some breakfast um normally i would make a cup of tea or coffee but i just I got water. I got water. It's afternoon. I've had. I've. I've already been in Starbucks. I've already abused their Wi-Fi and their electricity. 
uh, I'm in an area at the moment where there's no Wi-Fi. It's really annoying. There's, I, I can barely even get like a, a bar on my phone. I seem to be in the dead zone, so I can't upload things. It's really annoying. I can barely even reply to... When people reply on social media or, or send me a message, I can barely reply. In fact, I have to keep double-checking that it's been sent. It's so annoying. Oh, I can't wait till I get out of this place. Hopefully in about a week's time. I'm here because... Exciting... I'm heading into town tomorrow. My my mugs have arrived. Some new Murder Mile mugs. So the uh, uh, Stay Safe Eat Cake mugs are there. I think I've got some Police Constable Arsenal Guinness mugs. Um, I've got some other ones. I think it's the Blackout Ripper ones. I think. I'd say... Uh, uh, very exciting anyway i'm going to pick them on 60 i've no idea how i'm going to get 60 of them back but i will do anyway right uh if you're new to extra mile this is extra mile uh we're going to do a quiz in a bit i'm going to fill you in with loads of extra details uh, but first a thank you to my new patreon supporters who are donna reed mike just mike maybe you're like share you've just got a, a one name mike uh th- th- that's the same mike sally cook Laurie Jones, sorry I've got burpees at this point because I've just had a uh, uh, a peanut butter sandwich. Uh, Laurie Jones, not that's the same Laurie Jones, not there's not two. Uh, Sarah Yates, Liz McDougall, Paul Pardew, uh, and Jeff Leach. So thank you everyone, thank you so much. Uh, just to say uh, what I might do in this episode, I'll put a little link to Centerpoint. Uh, if you go to their website, you'll see that there's a donate button. And if you want to donate to Centerpoint, who are a fantastic local charity, you can do that. Um, the reason why I know that information at the start about how uh, some of the charities work, it's not really the charities. It's If you think about it, a charity is always in a difficult situation. They need to get people donating to them, but they need to get the message out. It's really difficult. It costs a lot of money and they've got to balance it out nicely. So... Uh, charities are non-profit organizations and that way by keeping it non-profit it means they don't pay any tax which is great but in order to do that they have to keep the amount of money that they raise to a limit so what they do is they go out to these third-party companies uh, who have kind of teams that can do this and they can do all the advertising and they say we need to raise some money and because we're non-profit they go okay how much do you need to raise and the, the the charity will go half a million pounds okay that's great half a million pounds so this company will go out and raise half a million pounds but if the third part company raises more than half a million pounds which they intend to do that is their profits that's the that's their money so if you're doing a direct debit your money may not be going to, to the charity it may just be going to this third party company how do i know that had a mate who used to work for uh, a charity organization he found out that and he was absolutely disgusted so um many people who work for these companies may not know that as well so don't don't have a go at them the, the, a lot of the charity chuggers you know they all believe they're doing the right thing but maybe they're not or maybe some companies aren't all like that but this is what i do once a month instead of doing a direct debit it, it's a little bit more hassly but you can go on to like i go to um like uh, Centerpoint or uh, uh, St Mungo's, the local homeless charity. I go there one, once a month to their website. Uh, you can put in like 30, 50 quid, send it direct to them. It goes straight to them. They, they, there's no cost. There's no 
staff that are having, you having to pay like a separate company. It's 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 a much better idea. It takes us it takes us a tiny bit of effort, but once you've set it up, once you can do it again, uh, and I think some of them have started doing uh, uh, mini direct debits that you can do as well. So there you go. Just a, a bit of information there. Uh, right, let's do a quiz, and uh, I'll give you the answers in a bit. But obviously, some of these questions are my balls up. <gasps> so whew. question number one. How many stories high is the centre point on the corner of Oxford Street? So the big one, how how many stories high is it? Question two, what year did the Vagrancy Act come into law? Question three, uh, which bank did David exchange the Churchill crown? Uh, question four, what is the name of the shop which purchased the gold items that David stole? Question number five, what was Detective Chief Inspector Neville's first name? So his given name. Question number six, now this isn't in this episode, but Centrepoint, uh, so the charity at uh, on Dean Street, is at the back of St Anne's Churchyard. But which memorial happened there? It's one that we heard about in an earlier episode of Murder Mile. Uh, question seven. What age was David when he was arrested? Question eight. What day was David arrested? So day, date, month. Question nine. What blood type is David? So what blood group? And question ten. Uh, which police station was David interviewed at? I hate that word, at, at the end. It doesn't seem to work. Right, OK. Let's dive into some extra details about this case. Uh, I'm going to start with the full letter. So David wrote that letter to the police. Well, he says he didn't, but he did. The handwriting was right. The fingerprints matched. Uh, I edited it down for the sake of... Because it, it, it meanders in the in the midsection. I'll, I'll work on that. In, I'll show you that in a second. But this is the whole letter. Dear Superintendent... I thought you may like some help with your present case as it seems that you are approaching it from the wrong angle. I mean, your recent trip, trip to Belfast has proved futile, glad I took that section out, uh, and has only eliminated another suspect. I didn't like the idea of Sarah's departure, but things couldn't be helped. Though, what is to stop it happening again? I found a strange sense of power in depriving a body of life, though, though Sarah was a mistake. I would like to make a deal. Publish a list of drug pushers operating around England and I will get rid of them for you. This may sound funny, but I have observed the human wrecks that they cause along with their suffering. I've witnessed young girls on the game solely for dope, sleeping in Covent Garden for want of something better, and I've also seen the West End Central Police, in brackets CID, just standing about watching whilst deals are going on under their noses. So why do I tell you this? Mainly because I'm a lonely person, always have been, and secondly because I think I may be ill. The reason I think this is that on the night Sarah died, uh, which by the way I still can't remember, I felt no remorse, no guilt. So hurry up and catch me. I won't give myself up for incarceration as that will destroy me, but I have a great deal as I, and I have a great deal longer for live lo, and I have a great deal longer to live. To prove this isn't a crank's letter, you found some blue dressing gown cord under the bed, at least a couple of pieces. Um, 
which is kind of interesting. He goes off on that little rant in the centre about hating drug dealers. It's kind of a weird one. The police picked him up on this, and it's like we still don't know why he was going on about drug dealers he didn't seem to have a problem he didn't seem to hate them before um in there you've noticed that uh he mentions that he thinks he might be ill that's kind of convenient really at this point isn't he especially as he's desperate to be caught uh he also mentions in there uh he says which by the way i still can't remember so uh he can't remember much about the murder it's all fascinating it's an odd letter. Uh, it really is. The, the the reason why he knew about the trip to Belfast is this was in all the papers. It's kind of it was uh, there was a lot of coverage of this. Um, when David B was being prepared for trial, obviously there was two psychiatric reports. Um, uh, they mentioned that he had a loss of memory, but a good memory for most things. But the details to do with the murder and especially the sexual assault of Sarah, uh, his memory is vague. He admits he may have committed them, but appears puzzled as to why he cannot remember them. Uh, the psychiatrist said there was no evidence of gross psychiatric illness, no psychiatric history in his family, and he was considered fit to stand trial. He said, stated, David Frooms has a severe personality disorder characterised by feelings of inadequacy. We use this in part two. Uh, by lack of persistence in ordinary tasks when outside the supporting com confines of institutions and by panics in uh, any pan um, any panics in psychologically threatening situations especially sexual ones uh, in which he is liable to act impulsively and perhaps violently i made a deliberate choice in this episode in the with these three episodes normally what i'd do is i'd lay little pieces of information and then i'd bring them back in later episodes but with this one uh i really wanted you to make up your own mind with this so even though in part two we used a lot of the kind of the idea that he panics and the the four key words are in his mind of 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 uh, sex panic uh, i can't remember the other one the one was flee I was going to bring that back, but I decided not to. It's up to you to decide exactly why he's doing what he's doing. Um, psychiatric report said he is socially inept. Despite the good impression he makes on interview, he has great difficulty in making or sustaining close relationships. This is all likely to be related to his deprived childhood and largely institutional life since the age of seven. But while it helps to understand his actions, in my opinion, it does not diminish his responsibility for them or his ability to form an intent. Uh, Frooms has expressed his concern that he might kill again. Um, half of me is wondering whether he just wants to stay in prison forever. And I share his concern. Unfortunately, the treatment which might be best for him as an individual, perhaps a therapeutic community in an open setting, this is such as Simonwell, because they've already seen that at places like Simonwell, he seems to flourish quite well. Uh, with the opportunities to become accustomed to female company, conflicts with the need of a society to protect, to be protected. If he is convicted, I can therefore only recommend that arrangements should be made for him to... Uh, to spend the last two or three years of his sentence at Grendon uh, Prison, which was the psychiatric prison that he was sent to, where he seemed to do okay. Uh, he didn't seem to uh, do great, but he did better than most. Um, in this episode, there's a lot of things that I, uh, we still don't know the answers to, so I thought I'd throw these out there. I'm not going to give you uh, kind of. I'm not going to say this is this is what we should believe. This is kind of up for you, really. Um, he said that he broke into the place because he wanted something to eat and he wanted to some wanted some food, but 
He also admits that he he went past a bag of bread rolls when he broke into the uh, the dining room, and yet he doesn't touch them. Uh, but also when he was in uh, on his written statement, so he gave a verbal statement. And then he gave a written statement that he wrote himself. He contradicts himself where he said he found no food at all. Uh, maybe this was just a mistake. Uh, he said he wants money, but he only partially tries to break into the waiter's drawer. He also doesn't go in search in any kind of uh, any other uh, place. In the, it's, it's a restaurant, so you'd expect to find money in there. So if he really wanted money, surely he would really want to break into there. Um, he... <sighs> Uh, he enters via the ground floor uh, of the RAC club now in there is obviously kitchens and bars places with food and money um, so he could have stayed on the ground floor they they almost certainly probably would have had a basement I almost know that they well they do have a basement there which is where most of the kind of the food would be so if you wanted food he could go down there lots of places to hide but he doesn't go down there he decides to go up instead uh what else we got uh the, the hotel uh, also the hotel probably would have had a cloakroom so why didn't he go in search of a cloakroom uh why didn't he steal the cutlery from the table it's a posh place it's not gonna have shit cutlery is it he could have just filled his pockets full of nice silver cutlery gone down a shop as he did sold them off but he didn't he decided to go in and further up into the into the hotel um when he saw the girl in the bed, why didn't he leave? Surely there's other rooms, other doors he could have tried. Uh, obviously, the things that uh, he stole were on the dressing table nearest the door, which is fine. So he could have just reached his hand and grabbed them, but he didn't. Why did he decide he had to go in to the rest of the room? Was it because he'd done it many times before and he'd got away with it? Or did he not see her as a threat? Um in his statements, obviously, I mentioned he's got a verbal statement and a written statement. Um, he contradicts himself in there as well. Uh, in the uh, in one of the ones, he says he comes in, she starts to stir, uh, and then he, he gags her. He tells her to shut up, then he stags her. Uh, th then he gags her. In a, another one, he says uh, she... St he was worried that she'd start to stir, so he grabbed things ready to uh, gag her just in case she woke up, which is when he grabbed the um, the, the toweling and the uh, the handkerchief that he used. But in another one, he said, "I placed this article over her mouth, and then she and and she woke up," which suggests she was asleep. So either she, either that suggests she was slightly stirring, and then she woke up, or she was already asleep. But he gagged her, and then she woke up. So there's a lot of confusion in his statements. Uh, it's a hotel, so it's it's almost midnight, right? Uh, the reason why you can get into uh, the dining room is it's pretty much empty. Most of most of the people who the guests who were there have either left or they've gone to their rooms. So it's midnight. And given the fact that a window is slightly open or he's already in, why doesn't he just hide until two a.m. when he knows? Being a hotel, there's going to be pretty much no one there. He can have kind of a run of the place. Nice and easy. Get down to the kitchens. No one will be in the kitchens. Hopefully, he could have whatever he wants. But he doesn't. Uh, the strangulation was uh, long and torturous. Now, he tries roughly three times to strangle her. 
he's not a particularly strong man uh, he's little he's weak uh, he doesn't eat particularly well therefore he's he's not particularly strong first he says he he, tr- he says he tries to strangle her using his hands now this is only if we accept he, what he does he then says he tries to strangle her with the blue cord from the dressing gown uh, but in a in in the verbal statement he says he tries but as he's strangling her that cord snaps which is why he grabs uh, her red nightdress which she's wearing which he's ripped open and he strangles her with that but that's only if we believe that um uh, it's uh, it's weird isn't it he strangles her he sexually molests her oh boat going past too fast Oh, shitty wide beam as well. Not just a shitty wide beam, but a very, very ridiculously sized wide beam that is blocking the whole... Oh, ridiculous. Ridiculous. Uh, where was I? He strangles her, he sexually molests her, he kills her, uh, but then he covers her up and says, it seemed the right thing to do. Which is interesting. If you go back to the letters that we did in part one, and he's talking about the girl Anne, who he seems to be in love with. He wants to go and see her in Nottingham, but um, uh, he needs money from his mum. That kind of mirrors what he was saying there. So did he? Did she dump him, or was she not interested? Or we don't know. We really don't know these details. Um, in it's it's really weird. In his verbal statements. Uh, that he's given to the police he's he seems to he seems to be very vague and all over the shop and he seems to uh, like not know there was like a knife thingy there and uh, uh, you know he doesn't seem to know the word nightdress but he knows the word fish knife it's weird why why i would i don't even know if i would know what a fish fish knife looks like so um it's weird when when you go through his letters uh especially the ones to to his family of which he's clearly well educated he clearly knows how to write but when he's writing the statement for the police it's i think he's trying to come across as a bit as a bit illiterate but it's just not working because they already have the proof that uh of what he was doing uh what else have we got uh, when they went to police, obviously after he was arrested, they went to uh, the left luggage kiosk at Piccadilly Circus uh, Underground Station. Uh, and in there they found a brown briefcase, a set of playing cards, a cigarette lighter, uh, not that one, six packets of cigarette papers, five dice in a dice box. These are all his personal possessions. One grey flannel shirt, one tin containing two packs of cigarette papers and two pieces of paper. Two left luggage counterfoils, one rucksack, which was uh, Sarah's, one brown jumper, not that one, it was a different one he was wearing, black shoes, black trousers, blue jeans, not those ones, uh, eight pieces of peace note paper with nine envelopes. These were the ones that he used to write the letter to uh, the police. We still don't know what, whether these were Sarah's. It's likely they were Sarah's. They look like the kind of thing that she would have. Uh, he had a bag of plastic of his toiletries, a vest, a white shirt, a pair of soiled underpants. Lovely. Um, lots of other things. His employment card, which he never used. Uh, and I think that's it. Uh, they also, in the uh, Piccadilly toilet, uh, toilet attendant found uh, a lady's handbag in which was a comb a pair of spectacles a pair of sunglasses three photographs some letters a powder puff a small fold-up rain mac a cigar in a box 
five cigars in a box, a biro pen, and one packet of sweets. I don't know what type of sweets, but I'd love to know. Um, so this was that letter that I mentioned about uh, that he sent to his mum. Uh, just as a reminder, he says, uh, I wonder if you could help me. There was a girl called Anne who I'm very fond of and whom has sort of kept an eye on me for the last uh, four years now. And he mentions that she's obviously in Nottingham and he wants to go and see her. I want very much to see her uh, and to hitch a lip uh, up there. Where's that line? Um, she... Uh, uh, she really is the only girl I've ever felt anything for. I don't like the idea of her being up there alone, which was interesting. It kind of has have mirrors of the way that he'd murdered Sarah, and then he didn't he didn't like the idea of her, even though she's dead, her being alone in the room by herself. So he kind of put the uh, the blanket up over her over her nose as if she was going asleep. It's weird. What's going on in his head? I, it's it's weird. I don't know. Oh, let's see if we've got time for this one. Yeah, we have. Right, David did a written statement. So he gave, it's interesting, he gave, he, he sat down with the police and the police had already stripped him of all of his clothes because they needed, needed it for kind of, a, to be sent to the laboratory. And basically he was he's left there in a pair of pants, a pair of shoes and his overcoat. Um, and they were like, do you want to give a statement? And he was like, yep, that's fine. And so they basically wrote it down. But what he did was... Um, they gave him some notepaper and he started doing sketches while he was there of kind of like he would say things and then he'd go, right, this is what a, a sketching. So, but after that was all finished, they said, would you like to make a, a, a like us to make a written statement? Uh, and he said, no, that's fine. I'll do that m myself. Um, interestingly, I haven't got this in my notes here, but uh, when he was arrested, they said, we're going to need to take some samples from you, such as uh, your hair, saliva, uh, semen, things like that. And they said, are you okay with that? And he was like, yeah, that's not a problem at all. Um, uh, they said, can you provide a semen sample? And he said, <laughs> I can't remember what his words were. His words were like, I, I'll see I'll see if I can do it, but I'm just not in the mood. <laughs> he did, he did. He, he managed to, he managed to. Uh, so this was the written statement after he'd given all of his uh, verbal statements. The ver I, I can't read the verbal statements because it's huge. But if you're on Patreon... You'll get to see it. I'll put it on there. Uh, so he said this. So uh, he started this at 1.28 a.m. Uh, the statement was, I make the statement of my own free will. I have been told I need not say anything unless I wish to do so, and that whatever I say may uh, may be given in silence. Signed, D. Frooms. This is obviously the standard thing you have to write on the top of your statement. He said, um, I was trying to sleep in St. James's Park when I heard the heard and saw the police waking everyone up and asking them questions. I thought I'd better leave and I did so. Uh, I went off to look for somewhere to sleep and in doing so I went round the back of this large building which displayed a wall sign. I tried at first to sleep under a sort of a balcony that was there but it was too cold. So I left my rucksack there and, and I took a look around the garden uh, at the back of a thin building. Uh, this is this is why I've used the I've used the written statement and the verbal statement to get us through this because there's there's so many holes in this. Um, I thought there may be a garden shed or something similar, but no. While searching, I came upon the back of this large building which had a few lights on, so I climbed over a stone wall and had a look around. Uh, then the thought entered my head that I might find something to eat there, so I tried the windows and doors, but all but all but, but all were locked. I then saw an open window on the first floor 
and uh, so I went back to where I had seen some ladders propped against a wall and I took one along to where uh, I could climb onto a low roofed building which jutted out from the main building. I climbed up to this and then along a ledge to a, to the window in question. Uh, it was held open by some pa paper wedged into it. We still don't know who did that. Uh, I entered the place to find it was some sort of dining room. So I searched around for some food but didn't find any. Whilst doing so, I came across this desk which was padlocked. I tried to break it with my hands but I couldn't. So I, uh, so I tried again with a knife I found on one of the tables. I wasn't able to do so for some reason or other, so I left it and went further into the building. I eventually came to some stairs and climbed up there until I reached the roof. It was here I saw a light in the window and I tried to see how I could get across there. Um, if you're a patron subscriber, uh, last week I posted a, a photo of uh, the police reconstruction of what he saw through the window. It's quite interesting. Uh, on looking round, I found this door and I went through this until I came to another passage with doors all along it. I went along until I came to this one where I could see a light was coming from. I opened the door and went in very quietly and I saw this girl lying on the bed asleep. Just behind the door was a chair which had some cushions on and a handbag and three other things on the back. This, see, you can see even on the written statement, he's getting vague. Uh, I opened the handbag and found a small purse, but all it contained was some loose change, approximately 60 pence. I then picked up one of the articles, articles, love it, uh, lying on the back of the chair and went over to the bed. I placed this article over her mouth. See, there's nothing in there about her waking up. Uh, I placed this article over her mouth and she woke up and I told her to keep quiet. I then gagged her with my handkerchief and held it with some toweling which I tore up. Uh, then I tried her. Uh, then I tied her hands with the stockings which I found somewhere. I then had to look round for money and food. I couldn't find any. Then I cut her hands loose and she said something about the stockings and then and then tied her up again with some blue cord which I found hanging on the dressing table. I can hear a knocking. It's very weird. Uh, I then remember something red and me strangling her, uh, but I cut the cord and tr and tried with that, but that broke or something. Then I put the cord under the bed and tried with my hands, but I was sweating, and then something red. Something next... He's talking about the nightdress there. Uh, the next thing I remember is putting the sign on the door. But before that, I covered her up with blankets and drew the curtains. I covered her up because it seemed right. I then left, putting a do not disturb notice on the door. I went back the way I came and collected my rucksack. And then I went to a club called The Apple. I still haven't found out where The Apple is. Uh, where I sat until the morning. I think I went down to the park as I usually do and went to sleep in the deck chairs. Then either the next day or within three days, I went and sold some of the stuff I had taken. I sold a charm bracelet and a lighter in a shop not far from Cambridge Circus. It wasn't actually that far from there. Uh, it was a woman who gave me the money, something like £2. The rest of the stuff I got rid of, some of it was in a white box I left in St. In in St. James's Park toilets. That was actually Piccadilly Circus. Um... The bag I used to carry around I left in the toilets in Piccadilly Underground Station, also a radio. Uh, I put the bag behind the station and left the radio on the floor. 
since then, I have been mainly mainly dossing around London, apart from the time I went to Ramsgate. Um, the bag I was talking about was the girls. I went to Ramsgate to see some friends, but for some reason I lost my nerve and hid myself in a water tank and crept out. Uh, crept out the next night, taking with me some money and cigarettes. I came back to London on Friday. I wrote the letter on Saturday to the police as I wanted to be caught in case I did something like this again. See, there he admits to it, but uh, verbally he he denied it and in court he denied it as well uh, i don't know why i killed her i haven't seen her before uh and that was that and he finished writing that at 2 33 a.m that was that there's loads that i could I, I i could probably do another episode on this because we've got all the all the like really a lot of the kind of the detailed stuff to do with the because uh, a lot of uh, the stuff was sent to the uh, police laboratory not the one in Hendon but there's one in um, uh, Mal in Hoban there's one at the back of Hoban uh, which was the main one that they were using at that point so uh, and that was kind of interesting but let's dive into the quiz questions as to the answers some of which I may have ballsed up at that point but you know what who cares uh, <laughs> question one how many stories high is the centre point uh, on the corner of Oxford Street? It's 34 stories high. Question two. What year did the Vagrancy Act come into law? It was 1866. Question three. Which bank did David exchange the Churchill crown? It was the NatWest near Pall Mall. Uh, the exact one that you used, I didn't put this in the episode, was 16 Waterloo Place, which is right next to the Churchill statue. Uh, and it's and it's literally f like six doors down from the RAC club. Uh, what was the question four? What was the name of the shop which purchased the gold items? It was De Vere's Coins on Charing Cross Road. Question five. What was Detective Chief Inspector Neville's first name? It was James. Question six. It's not in this episode, but Centrepoint is at the back of St Anne's Churchyard and which memorial, as mentioned in an earlier episode of Murder Mile, happened there? It was the tribute to the victims of the Admiral Duncan bombing. Question seven. What age was David when he was arrested? He was uh, 24 years old. Uh, so he should be if he's still alive i can't find a death record for him so he's likely he's still alive he'd be 74 now unless he changed his name uh and with the possibility that he was given a life sentence which he was which is 15 years plus at that point uh likelihood is he would have been arrested uh, he would have been released uh end of the late 1980s but in and out of prison all his life he may still be in prison now for all we know uh question eight what day was David arrested? That was Tuesday the 11th of July 1972. Question 9. Oh, what blood type was David? He was a Group O non-secretor. And the fact that he was a non-secretor made everything really difficult because obviously uh, Sarah was a Group A secretor. Which, so they could prove 
everything that she touched and kind of well they could prove what what was her blood what was her saliva you know uh all things like that because she was a secretor and she was group a but because he was group o non-secretor that meant quite often when you read the um the reports that from the laboratory quite often it would say uh this is this is definitely sarah's but this might be david's because it's it's it you know group a uh, group O non-secretors it really kind of makes things very difficult uh question 10 which police station was david interviewed at it was cannon street police station Whoa, god that was a, a a long extra mile sorry about that everyone uh ooh, burpees right i'm gonna what time is it what time is love it's four o'clock <sighs> shall i attempt to try and do some editing now or should I, just, uh, should I just wrap up for the day i might wrap up for the day and then just do an early start tomorrow morning i need a rest right hope you enjoyed that uh we'll be back next week with a single parter oh exciting have yourself a good week stay safe and be good lots of love bye even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.